Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. Zimbabwe has had exactly one leader in its entire 37-year history as an independent country. That was until November 14th, when Robert Mugabe was deposed in an apparent coup. What happens next is very much still in the air. Right now, Robert Mugabe and his wife Grace are under an apparent house arrest, though the day I am recording this, he did make a public appearance. Meanwhile, his recently sacked vice president, Emerson Nangagwa, seems to be calling the shots. On the line with me to discuss these recent events in Zimbabwe and offer some deeper context in which to understand how, after 37 years in power, Robert Mugabe's time has come to an end so abruptly, is Ambassador John Campbell, who is the Ralph Bunch Senior Fellow for Africa Policy Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Ambassador Campbell explains how an intra-party rivalry over who might succeed the 93-year-old Mugabe seems to have triggered this coup. We also discuss Mugabe's history as a singularly fascinating liberation leader who for a time presided over a booming economy until, that is, he ruined it for reasons the ambassador explains. If you have 30 minutes and want to understand how we came to this moment in world history... Then have a listen. As always, if you want to get in touch with me, if you have suggestions of people I should interview, topics I should cover, please send me an email via globaldispatchespodcast.com. And if you are new to the show, I strongly recommend you check out our archive. We have a, a long and robust archive of conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss all sorts of interesting events and world affairs and also their own life and career. And we use their own narrative, their own life stories as entry points into substantive conversations about historic and contemporary issues in world affairs. So go check out the archives, go find uh, me interview someone you might know, maybe someone you don't know. I guarantee you uh, these conversations are all are all pretty interesting. Some good nuggets in there. All right, now here is my conversation with Ambassador John Campbell of the Council on Foreign Relations. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. President Mugabe fired his vice president, Emerson Nangagwa, who is the leader of one of the two major uh, factions within ZANU-PF, 
ZANU-PF is the governing party uh, in Zimbabwe. Emerson's faction is largely made up of people who fought in the struggle that led to the end of minority white rule in 1980. There is a heavy overlap with the military. Most of the political leaders in that faction have had a military career. Notice we're talking about fought in the uh, the struggle that ended white rule. Well, that happened in 1980. Yeah, these, these people uh, must be kind of old by now. Well, they are. Not quite and as old Emerson, as Mugabe himself, but old enough. No, but Emerson, em, Emerson is 75. Uh, so, yes, I mean, we're, we're talking about the older generation. The other faction, which is called G40, because most of its members are in their 40s, and therefore, basically a generation younger, they are closely associated with Grace Mugabe. And the issue between the two factions is not one of policy or principle. The issue between the two factions is who gets to succeed Mugabe uh, when he either is totally incapacitated or he dies. Uh, Mugabe, of course, is 93 years old. Uh, goes fairly frequently to Singapore for uh, for medical treatment, uh, as is quite typical amongst African leaders. What exactly his ailments are is never made public. I mean, at 93 would, years old, you could sort of take your pick, I would imagine. Well, an interesting thing is Mugabe's mother lived to be 103. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it's, so he comes from, you know, very long-lived stock. <clears throat> Um, so, what we're talking about is an intra-ZANU-PF struggle over who's going to succeed uh, Mugabe. We're not talking about principle of any sort. Um, it's basically who's going to run the show. Now, what seems to have precipitated Mugabe's firing of Emerson was that Emerson was present at a rally at which Grace Mugabe uh, was booed. And uh, apparently she hit the roof. And the supposition, and it's nothing more than supposition, is that she then prevailed upon her husband to to fire him. Um, Relations, however... Uh, between Mugabe and Emerson have been deteriorating uh, for some time. So while the the booing may have precipitated uh, the dismissal, um, I suspect the causes are um, are rather deeper. And and so it seems that Grace Mugabe, as you said, has sort of the the support of a younger generation, but. Uh, right. Emerson Nangagwa has the support of the military, and you know when push comes to shove, uh, it seems that the military sort of emerged victorious in this power struggle. That's exactly right. Uh, <clears throat> uh, it's interesting when the chief of the army held a press conference that presaged to the coup. Uh, at that press conference were ninety senior military officers. 
In other words, one of the really interesting things about this coup is that there's no evidence of division within the military at all. And I think that's one reason why uh, the coup has been so bloodless. If the military had split, if, in other words, part of the military had been willing to fight for Mugabe, then it could have been considerably hmm. more bloody. Hmm. Um, and, and meanwhile, Emerson Nangagwa, after his sacking, fled for his life, apparently. Well, or at least he fled, uh, presumably to South Africa, though even that is unclear. Hmm. <clears throat> and, and okay, so, so uh, Emerson, so, so the military, so I should say, what, um, what happened? Like, what was the final decision, to your knowledge, that led the military to exert itself in Harare? Well, uh, essentially, the concern that Grace Mugabe had won uh, and that she was going to be the successor uh, to to Mugabe. But there are a lot of things here that are extremely muddy. One is that the coup appeared to be extremely well-planned. Secondly, uh, there are reports not authoritatively concerned, but there are a number of reports to the effect that the coup plotters gave advance notice to both China and to South Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we saw this week may have been sort of baking in the oven uh, for some weeks. It could have been like the emergency escape hatch that was finally opened. People had been the, the or, military perhaps had been pl like planning or preparing for this moment. You're suggesting something along those lines, and then when Emerson got fired, uh, they moved. Mm -hmm. That was the, the the triggering event. So I, I know this is obviously a, a fast moving uh, situation, but how best would you describe the situation right now? I mean, from me as an observer, it seems that the military is trying to come with, uh, up with some sort of accommodation or, or means of accommodation with Robert Mugabe, keeping him under house arrest, but perhaps not um, like humiliating or embarrassing him or perhaps trying to keep him as a titular head of some sort. Well, I think that's right. Um, the, the military has a real problem. Oh, by the way, let me note parenthetically that today Mugabe actually attended a university graduation ceremony. Mm -hmm. So he made a public uh, appearance. Yes, he made a public appearance. And there he is photographed in his cap and gown. Uh, here's a dilemma that the military faces. <clears throat> to be absolutely direct, this was a military coup uh, at four o'clock in the morning. Military officers took over the television station uh, uh, broadcast that the president and his wife were under house arrest. Military equipment, tanks, armored vehicles and that kind of thing blocked the roads uh, uh, around Harare. This is the classic definition of a military coup. But. The military has insisted that it was not a coup, that in fact its goal was not to overthrow the Mugabe government, but rather to get at the criminals, put that in quotation marks, uh, around Mugabe. And in fact, the Minister of Finance has already been arrested. Um, uh, a couple of other uh, senior 
political figures associated with race have been arrested, and a number of cabinet officers have gone into hiding. <clears throat> the coup issue looms so large because the African Union and the Southern uh, uh, African Development Community, the two regional organizations that are applicable here, are both on record to the effect that coups are absolutely unacceptable. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, that's also the position of the United States government. Yeah, we, there are laws on, on the U.S. books that uh, indicate well, that you know, if, if a coup is declared, it sort of triggers a set of actions, including sanctions. And so mm -hmm. whenever you have these kinds of changes of governments that happen in coup-like fashions, you can often see American officials twisting themselves into knots to avoid calling it a coup. Most dramatically in 2013, yeah, when the Egypt. military overthrew the Egyptian government. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you look at the if you look at the State Department's statement of yesterday on what happened in Zimbabwe, uh, they're clearly jumping through hoops to um, to to avoid characterizing. Yeah, there, there's a joke going around Twitter. Uh, basically, when the guy in military fatigues is reading the evening news on TV, you know it's a coup. You do, you know, <laughs> and that's why you know. Yeah. In plain English, it was a coup, yeah, yeah. but uh, it's a coup which, however, the military are doing everything they possibly can uh, to avoid the label. And that's where the conversations with Mugabe come in, because if, in fact, the military can secure some agreement from Mugabe, uh, perhaps to leave the country, perhaps to retain some kind of ceremonial role, uh, perhaps to leave him in office until his uh, term expires, but stripping him of, of political power. That All of that is very important to the military, because then they can argue with some credibility that it wasn't a coup. Mm -hmm. He just became president emeritus. Uh, kind of, yeah, that's right, um, kind of. Now, there are a number of, number of things here, though, uh, and that is in the negotiations that apparently are going on at State House in Harare, uh, Mugabe's taking a hard line. Um, you know, he's saying, no, he will not step down. Because mm -hmm. um, that, that's the leverage that he has, right, is, is if he declares this was a coup, it could trigger all sorts of, um, you know, negative consequences for the transitional ruling people in, in Harare. That's right. But the military also have a card. Interesting that there's hardly any reference made to it. And that is that Grace Mugabe is extraordinarily unpopular. You know, she has beat up people. Uh, she's uh, the um, the Zimbabwean government has had to invoke diplomatic immunity mm -hmm. at least twice because of assaults, one in Hong Kong, one in Johannesburg. Uh, yeah, there was this bizarre, I should say, there was this bizarre almost tabloid story uh, a few, couple of months ago or maybe even last month in which she was accused of using an electrical cord to whip a, a model who was dating her son. It was, it was in, in, in uh, South Africa. It was, it was a bizarre sort of, you know, tabloid fodder that caused like real and legitimate international uh, relations concerns. It did, yeah, It did indeed. That was, that was in Johannesburg, and that was one of the cases where uh, diplomatic immunity had to be, yeah. uh, be invoked. Um, by the way, uh, um, <clears throat> the girls involved 
may have been models. They're also characterized as having been prostitutes. Mm. Um, so you know, it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty uh, pretty sordid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She is also notorious for her levels of conspicuous consumption. Ah. Now, I mean, you know, she's very much a kind of Melda Marcos kind of figure. Now, the point is. Uh, oh, and I, I should also mention that um, she has three sons by uh, by Mugabe, um, who are you know sort of equally rep- uh, reprobates. Now, if the army goes after them, uh, after Grace and the three sons, um, I very much doubt that there would be public opposition to it. Hmm. You know, so the the army does have a hold over Mugabe. Can we go back a little bit and can you help set the context uh, for Robert Mugabe's emergence as, uh, you know, not only just a leader in Zimbabwe, but for a time as a a real pan-African leader and as a a real uh, vaunted figure in in African politics? Who is he? Where did he come from? How did he emerge in 1980 to lead the new country of Zimbabwe? Um, he was a senior figure in the liberation struggle against uh, Ian Smith's um, uh, white minority government. Uh, where did he come from? He was born under, moder- uh, on, under very modest circumstances, went to a Jesuit school uh, uh, fairly early on, and in fact, well into his, into his presidency, he was a practicing Catholic. Um, in other words, very disciplined, um, uh, 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 very, very intellectual. Um, he uh, he sort of rose to the top uh, of the liberation movement. Um, I can't remember whether he was present at Lancaster House uh, in 1980. Lancaster House was a conference in London uh, in, in which finally um, Smith stepped aside uh, and all race elections were, um, uh, were provided for. But whether he was there or not, uh, Mugabe was already calling the shots. <clears throat> Mugabe won the first the first elections um, by a heavy majority, defeating a Methodist bishop called Musarewa, uh, who essentially was the Western candidate. Somewhere along the line, Mugabe absorbed a good deal of Marxist Leninist thinking, a good deal of Pan-African thinking. And then there was the Roman Catholic dimension to it. You mix it all together, and you end up with a pretty exotic intellectual landscape. And and he was, it's worth pointing out, extremely popular at the time. And and it's oh, extremely and popular. and um, Zimbabwe itself in, in the 1980s was was a booming economy, right? And and it was it was it went, indeed. And and they were doing extremely well, and it was sort of considered as one of the best examples of how a a sort of post colonial you know liberational liberationist. African government could effectively rule and, and serve its people. But again, the issue is complicated. Um, the economy 
when uh, at the time of liberation, uh, there were, oh, eight or nine million Zimbabweans, uh, maybe 240,000 whites, and the 240,000 whites owned about 40% of the land, practically all of the land of high productivity. The economy was heavily based on the commercial raising and marketing of tobacco. Uh, uh, and that was central uh, to the prosperity of the country. You add to it that the Smith government and before had established a really excellent system of primary education, which has continued right on up uh, to, um, to, to very recent times. Hence, the proportion of Zimbabwe's population that could read and write English well was dramatically higher than, I think, than in any other African country, um, certainly higher than, uh, than in South Africa. So what do you have? You have market agriculture, an educated workforce, a pretty heavy uh, investment uh, from outside, and the table is set for a highly successful economy. And that's what you had uh, in the 1980s and in the 1990s. And then what happened? What, yeah. Well, yeah, notice what is left out. Uh, 40% of the land owned by uh, a tiny racial minority in a country in which land hunger has been a theme ever since the British went into what was then Rhodesia. What do you mean? In, what's in, land hunger? I've not heard that term. Um, basically, African peasants who wanted to farm their own land. Ah, okay. What is really interesting is that Mugabe embarked on a policy of, of, of kind of rational land reform uh, but the many of the landowners were stiff-necked, uh, and uh, in effect, the rational land reform policy failed. Now, let's keep that on the shelf. Land hunger, failed policies for land reform against a background of a successful economy, but one that is white-dominated. Opposition to Mugabe be, uh, was uh, emerged, particularly in the late 1980s and in the, the 1990s. Pretty serious opposition. Mugabe himself was convinced that this opposition was being funded by the white minority. Hence, early in um, uh, well, in the late 1990s, extending in to the, two, to the 2000s, he responded by encouraging the so-called war veterans to simply take over the white farms without compensation and with violence or the threat of violence. And in fact, that is exactly what happened. And then you saw sort of these these kind of 
quote, controversial land reforms, as they're often referred to in, you know, shorthand in the media, uh, result in, uh, you know, these long established farmsteads being taken over by people who did not necessarily have the capacity to, uh, you know, engage in the land as productively, let's say. Well, and also no capital to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> some of the land was was distributed uh, to uh, uh, to local farmers. However, a significant amount of it was essentially pocketed uh, by ZANU PF politicians. Uh, in other words, people around Mugabe did very well uh, out of land exp- uh, 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 expropriation. And and soon it was in the early two thousands a country that had one point you know been the breadbasket of of Africa suddenly saw need for food aid from like the World Food Program to come in. Well, it did indeed, and there were there were episodes of famines in um, uh, in certain areas. Um, I would note that while the tobacco industry collapsed um, uh, after the expulsion of the white farmers, uh, it has gradually recovered. In other words, um, a very small-scale African-style agriculture uh, has been able, over time, it's taken almost uh, uh, 10 or 15 years, but has been able, over time, to restore tobacco production. Uh, And could you also talk a little bit about how some of the decisions on the economy have... um really upended Zimbabwean society. I mean, you know, it wasn't that long ago that, that the country was issuing like, what, like a, a trillion dollar note. Oh uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. There was a whole, a whole series of, um, uh, of, of quite dreadful, uh, economic policy mistakes. One point we should be very, very clear on, I think, is that the, collapse of a Zimbabwean economy, the impoverishment of, um, uh, of the country, um, uh, the, the end of food security, this whole long list of lamentable developments were not an act of God. Uh, it was the direct result of policy decisions taken by the government, by the Mugabe regime. And, and- the justification that came from Mugabe and his spokesman was it amounted to real liberation of Africans from white colonialism. That was a justification for it. And the land distribution continues to be an extremely important issue because it is the basis for Mugabe's continuing support in rural areas. What did Mugabe do? What Mugabe did was he chased the whites out and gave us land. And so, I mean, it seems there there was um, about 10 years ago, the first real serious challenge to Mugabe's hold on power by Morgan Changarai and his uh, MDC party. Can you explain, right. like, where did that challenge come from? How did that evolve? And how is it that uh, Mugabe, you know, survived that that episode? Because you know this happened in the midst of Zimbabwe's, you know, dramatic decline. Well, yes. Um, 
the opposition to Mugabe uh, is essentially an urban phenomenon, essentially found in Harare and Bulawayo, uh, found amongst uh, those who essentially uh, want to participate in a modern economy, uh, want to be part of a society which is democratic and conducted according to the rule of law. And in fact, some of those elections that you have just referred to, uh, Morgan Spangarai almost certainly won them. However, the elections were rigged. There was a good deal of violence and intimidation. Uh, and the international community uh, uh, responded very weakly, if at all. This is particularly true of South Africa, because South Africa was the country best placed to actually uh, do something about what was happening in Zimbabwe, and successive South African governments essentially declined. Um, so, you know, if your question is, why didn't the opposition come to power? The answer is because of rigged elections and violence and intimidation. Um, so I'm wondering sort of where we go from the situation uh, today. I mean, it seems that, you know, Mugabe obviously, you know, took his country from, uh, from wealth to poverty. Something like what? A quarter of the population of Zimbabwe has left over the last 10 years, mostly to, to South Africa. Right. Um, there is concern though that those who are replacing him might not, uh, make the situation any better, might not be as enlightened. And, and oh, by the way, uh, Mugabe all the while has cracked down on civil society, on free press, and, and, you know, has, you know, been accused of, you know, and, and likely guilty of, of lots of human rights violations and imprisoning journalists and, and all that back, bad stuff. This takes us back to where we started. And that is that this military coup is an intra-party uh, uh, event. It is not an Arab Spring. It is not a sort of popular uprising. It is a fight within ZANU-PF. And in fact, um, uh, Emerson uh, is notorious for uh, his own human rights violations and his use of violence. Uh, he personally is under sanction from, uh, from the USG. The US In other words, yeah. yes, the U.S. government. In other words, there is no evidence whatsoever that the coup is going to, at least in the short term, lead to significant changes in the regime. But, and I think this is very important, the coup has happened. There are going to be transition arrangements. In the negotiations for those arrangements, members of the opposition are present, notably Morgan Schwangerai. The transition arrangements, it is widely expected, are designed to prepare the country for free elections within a longer time frame, say two or three years. In other words, while in the short term, it's likely to be same old, same old, over the longer term, the fact that the coup took place 
means that there is more movement or or potential movement or potential opening up of the political process than there was two weeks ago. Well, as opposed to just clamping it down, though, like why why is the potential for more openness as opposed to less openness? I mean, these you know Could this happen. is still Z, this is still Zanu PF. These are still like the military people in charge, right? Well, and, why would and, they and, why would they want to open up elections to uh, an opposition party? Well, and Emerson, uh, Emerson, as I said, uh, has a great deal of blood on his hands. Um, the reason why is that uh, those that made the coup are going to be dependent on uh, the opposition to justify their position, both to Zimbabweans and also to the international community, Hmm. so that they are using language like government of national unity. In other words... Opening up the process at least a little bit would appear to be necessary if the coup makers, and particularly Emerson, are to uh, are to remain in power. Now, if Emerson uh, goes all out with the use of the security services, um, that that is certainly that is certainly possible. Um, again, this coup, this coup was, as far as we can tell, was quietly welcomed by large numbers of Zimbabweans, particularly in the cities where Mugabe has been has been uh, been hated. But there was no sort of wild public enthusiasm for it. Another thing we haven't talked about, but is right there, is Zimbabwe has a long history of ethnic conflict, hmm. particularly between the Shona and the Indibili. Mugabe is a Shona. The Shona are the largest ethnic group in the country. And Mugabe himself in the 1980s conducted what amounts to his warfare against the Indibili because they were supporting what was hmm. then the opposition. So, you know, underneath all of this, you have the potential for a sort of ethnic conflict bubbling up. Can I ask you maybe one last very like nerdy question? Uh, we've danced around this, 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 this question a little bit. There is this concept in, in political science called coup proofing. That is the, yeah. the design, the ways in which strong men design their inner circle and confer power on subordinates in a way to prevent them from wanting to mount a, a coup. Uh, after right. 37 years in power, and for 37 years, uh, Mugabe avoided a, a coup until now. Uh, so I guess my question is, was this a successful coup-proofing strategy that he had engaged in over the years since it lasted 37 years? Or because he fell to a coup, do you think you know future political scientists will identify this as uh, a coup-proofing gone wrong? Uh, I think it was, it was highly successful. Um, and, and essentially what Mugabe did was he bought off the military and other – um, uh, other elements uh, in Zimbabwe. Uh, he created patronage clientage networks, uh, and the system worked extremely well. Uh, why did it fail? It failed because of grace. 
when when Mugabe made it clear that he his successor was to be his 42 year old wife, who was regarded as utterly unacceptable uh, by the people who have run Zimbabwe since independence, the jig was up, and the patronage clientage network has collapsed. Hmm. So that's that close family network is where this went wrong. That's and, right. and the personality of, of Grace uh, Mugabe. That's, um, exactly, that's well, exactly right. Well, John Campbell, thank you so much for your time. This was very, very helpful and timely, and we'll see how this evolves. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ambassador Campbell for speaking with me. It was a, on short notice. I took a trip to Ottawa this week. I'd never been to Ottawa, the capital of my ancestral homeland. I was there for an awards ceremony called the Global Pluralism Awards, which is an initiative between the government of Canada and the Aga Khan. And let me say the three awardees who won this prize are absolutely fascinating. And I hope to have them. Two of them are our English speakers. And I hope to have at least those two on the show in the near future. They are just absolutely amazing individuals that I think you will find so inspiring. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.